Couch Wisdom. Couch Wisdom. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline from Red Bull Music Academy. Welcome to Couch Wisdom, Red Bull Radio's podcast presenting the best of RBMA's lecture archive. Playing music at a young age does not a prodigy make, but it certainly helped Canadian composer Carolise Coverdale. A student of piano throughout her childhood in rural Ontario, she became organist and composing music director at a local church at 14. After earning an MA in musicology and composition, Coverdale moved to Montreal. In addition to working as the organist for a local church, she befriended esteemed sound artist Tim Hecker, who recruited her to play on his albums Virgins and Love Streams. In 2015, Coverdale released her solo debut, After Touches. Using synthetic instruments sourced from VSTs, sound banks, and personal archives, she blurred the lines between electronic and acoustic music, as well as the secular and the non-secular. Since then, she's played festivals like Mutech and Unsound, and in 2017, she released Grafts, on which she processed looped vocal samples to create cool and melodic modal compositions. In this episode of Couch Wisdom, recorded at the 2018 Red Bull Music Academy in Berlin, Coverdale talked collaboration, working with her Estonian musical heritage, and how architecture informs and influences her creative process. If you want to learn more about the Academy, please stay tuned after the lecture. For now, enjoy this bit of Couch Wisdom. You are a classically trained musician, as they say. Yeah. When did you start playing piano? Five. And when did you start actually composing? Hmm, I I guess it was a little bit later, like 10, maybe. Oh yeah, really old. (laughs) Let's talk a bit more about your time, like sort of gravitating from classical composition to more experimental territory. Did that start while you were getting your master's, like in a proper, you know, academy? Well, I think it started far earlier, like when I was young, just being an outsider kind of in many ways. Um, but I was very much, I was a good student, like I would say. Um, at the same time, like I did my, you know, two hours every day, <laughs> practice, that kind of thing. And, um, I was quite vigilant about that and very dedicated throughout my entire life. But... Um, I guess I've always been an advocate of individualism in music and experimentalism is kind of like the only avenue that allows that. I mean, when you're, when you're a music student, your entire um, first 15, 20 years of production is all about kind of fitting into someone else's glove and then you try on all these different personalities and these different um, ideas and ways of being, ways of thinking and ways of feeling. And then eventually you kind of have to make your own glove. But, and I think experimentalism was the best way to go through that. But um, like, I mean, classical music is also a really weird word because Classical really only refers to like the 18th century, <laughs> but of course like when you're classical like in the common understanding of the word or in the non-common understanding of the word rather um, It actually encompasses like, you know, anything from year one of human existence or like the earth 
you know, wind. When you were getting started as a child, like you were not only in this really structured environment, but it was also a competitive sort of environment as well, correct? Yeah, I did competitions, that kind of thing. Were you successful in these competitions? I was very competitive at the time, yeah. But I was pretty relaxed also, I think, sometimes. I mean, how would you be competitive? Were you like, you know, sabotaging the competitions? No. Like <laughs> no, I was very internally focused. Like maybe it was a com I was competitive with myself, I would say. And then supportive of anyone else who was doing the same thing. And it's not really about like beating the person next to you. It's about like your internal victories, let's say. So yeah, in that sense, I was always kind of like tightly wound coil, I guess. Were you like a little stress case around the house when you had a competition? Yeah, I mean like the day off, like performance week or like com competition week was always very <laughs> intense because I mean like even the classical upbringing, I don't know, I guess we're gonna go into this as an angle, but um, anyone here who has had that kind of training um, can sympathize with the idea that like you know, the third bar in the second cadenza has four sixteenth notes and there's a crescendo across those four and like if you decrescendo then you're playing that segment wrong. So it's like a hyper um, performative like practice that is expected to be reiterated in like immaculate detail. And so there's a lot of information, especially for, I think for a young kid. It's not really like a freeing sense of music production, I would say. What was your first real exposure to finding freedom in music? Like, when did you first start to veer out of just playing piano and doing these competitions? I mean, I actually had a lot of avenues for just doing weird stuff at home. Um, I played other instruments a lot that there was no pressure around or like no existing like tradition. I guess that's kind of the problem. Like when you have tradition around an instrument, like there's this whole, it's not really a problem. It can be very beautiful, but there is an entire like uh, technique library, I guess. But I had an accordion around that I like shredded a lot and that was fun and I had a, like my, one of the first things I saved up for as a kid was a boombox. Um, it was like $400, Sony, <laughs> Megabase. Um, you know, with the, like, the singular Megabase button so you could like boost the bass. And it had two tape players in it so you could dub off the radio and a CD player in the top so I'd like I don't know, I actually didn't understand it as a creative act at the time to do that kind of musical activity or like I didn't consider it like something that I would share to like a teacher or something. Um, that wasn't until much later in maybe 2000, um, 2007 then I got more into that like seriously. I think it's worth noting that, you know, while you were messing around with this mega bass button in your boombox, what environment were you living in? I was in the country. 
yeah, just, yeah, I was in the country. I grew up in the country. Um, my closest neighbor was maybe a kilometer and a half away. So I was an internet kid in many regards, and I kind of, yeah, started with downloading at around that time. And those outside voices were very important for me, maybe more important than they were for somebody who was living in an urban area because um, they were that much more fresh, I guess, or just like hearing it for the first time. When you're growing up around grass and stuff, is <laughs> different than uh, street clamor or whatever. Weren't you really into Mob Deep and Wu-Tang Clan? Yeah, I got into them in high school. Did they just, did their stories of, you know, street knowledge really relate to your rural Ontario experience? Like, what, what did you connect with in that music? Um, well, when I was 16, I got a car um, <laughs> with my uh, butter tart money. I worked at a, um, <laughs> at a butter tart store. What is butter tart for the non-Canadians? It's a Canadian delicacy. <laughs> it's like this weird tart that has a, you like fold the tart. And I was called the queen of sheeta at the time because you have to like sheet the, the dough down and like put it through this like dough press. And it goes through like five or six times and then you like stamp out these little like circular things and then you like put them into a pan. So I was like a machine with this. I was the fastest and I had like the best, like most perfect tart shells. So apparently your competitive nature <laughs> extended outside of the piano realm. Yeah, I like speed and like repetitive things. <laughs> and while you were growing up in the country and doing piano competitions and listening to Mob Deep at home. Yeah, that's why I started talking about the butter tarts because uh, rap sounds really good in the car. So I was like, I always had like the big CD Bible and just like listening to good shit. Yeah. Was it the lyrics or was it the music? It's the music. But it was also the lyrics. I mean, I knew them, but generally with music, I'm much more of a sonic person than a textual one. So like I can... I comprehend the inflection of the voice and like the delivery and the intent and like the emotional weight behind it, but like the actual word itself is kind of like register second. So yeah, but it was I was loved the productions and I was always trying to make them on the piano and like whatever I had around. But of course, like quite quickly discover that you can't like capture hell on earth like on your acoustic piano in your living room. Like, so then there was another like avenue of like, okay, how do I enrich things I make with kind of the artifact of recording technology? And yeah, I think that rap, was kind of rap production was the very first uh, like electronic music I really listened to and like, um, yeah, was into in that regard. I really like the idea of you trying to recreate like RZA beats on piano at home, especially because I know you were also actively playing at the church 
Can you tell me a bit about the role that the church had in your upbringing and in your musical story? Yeah, so um, when I was uh, 14, I started as a church organist. <laughs> and um, that was a funny time. I mean, it was kind of rough at first because there's so much repertoire to learn, like as a I remember being overwhelmed for many weeks and being like, this is too much for me. But after a while, you just learn all the music and then it just kind of comes out. But um, my family is also part Estonian, so I grew up going to Estonian school and Estonian church and stuff like that. So Estonian summer camp. So this was an Estonian church, so it's not very many people there, I guess. And anyways, I was already playing. They would ask me to play piano often and accompany people um, just as a way to like exercise my ability, I guess. And then the organist who was there, Eva Ramo, um, she eventually just asked me if I wanted to take over and I said, sure. <laughs> so it was a good job for me actually for many, many years. I was there for like, quite a minute. <laughs> Are you religious, or were you religious personally at the time? I wanted, a, I wanted to play music, and the pipe organ was an amazing instrument. I mean, I still think of it as the first synthesizer. It is the first synthesizer. And like, it was actually quite integral for how I started thinking about layering sounds and pitches and thinking about timbral writing instead of just harmonic writing, of course, because the vocabulary of the piano is quite monochromatic. So to think about how I could like, you know, bandonian or throw some flutes or diapason or all these like different textures and colors was like really interesting world. And then also with the bass um, foot, board was also really interesting for me. So I, I wouldn't say that it was like a, no, it wasn't a religious calling or anything. I think most organists would agree that it's, it's kind of a, a, more of a musical calling, I guess. Was it ever strange to be playing your music in an environment that comes with, you know, a lot of, let's say, historical baggage and a lot of like philosophical uh, baggage as well? I mean, because I assume, you know, you're, you're waiting in between sermons to, do, to play your music, but you're still hearing the sermons each week. Yeah, I think it's a little different for me also because the services were in another language. <laughs> were they in Estonian? They were, but I mean, I speak Estonian, but the, the language used in church is kind of like another level. <laughs> And I'd just kind of be like preparing my things in my head for like when I had to play. Um, sure, there's a certain tone there, and I think the architecture is, is one of them, um, of the space and kind of like the arrangement, like the way that with the organ, your back is always turned to everybody rather than in other performance situations you're facing. So there's kind of like a, a degree of anonymity, I think, that comes with performing, at least in the church tradition I was working in. Um, 
that kind of comes with it, that, that you're there to share like a musical object rather than like your personal object, I guess. Um, but ultimately, I think that kind of just made my music more be better. <laughs> more better, better. I mean, I want to ask about just how you feel in relation to your Estonian heritage, because it seems like you grew up, you know, going to Estonian church. Your mother has Estonian, is Estonian. You learned the language, but you grew up in Canada. So, like, did you feel Estonian when you were growing up, or did it feel just like this thing that your parents made you do? No, I felt Estonian very much. Um, but everything my grandparents did was Estonian. <laughs> like, is yeah, it's, it was very much a part, of, like, it's a very rich cultural existence being, it's like active work, and there's a really deep folk heritage there, especially with folk music. And I was always active in choirs, and I was always behind the piano accompanying choirs. And, um, not not in the religious sense at all like and i'm talking like folk choirs like my mom has several folk choir records um that she recorded with her buddies when she was a teenager beautiful records with like amazing covers my mom did all the graphic design and calligraphy but yeah there's a large community but at the same time i always felt like a bit of an outsider again um that there was a little bit of like a cliquey element around it sometimes. Yeah, I just, I guess that's maybe where I'm Canadian. <laughs> How did the experience of growing up Estonian in Canada compare with when you went to Estonia? And I believe you spent like four months. I did, that was my choice. I wanted to kind of have feet on ground and um, take the time to make something that felt like an immediate document of what the country was like at the time and how I kind of found myself as someone standing in it. Um, but I had been to Estonia several times before, um, mainly to visit family, but also the trips were always organized around the, the choir festival that takes place every four years there, um, which is this, I don't know if anyone here knows about it, but it's, um, I think must be one of the largest choir festivals in the world, but Estonians are understood now in the historical record to kind of have sung themselves to freedom from Russian occupation. And so they form this human singing chain across the Baltic states and imbued a lot of their choral work with protest lyrics. And they held several protest rallies through song all over Estonia. And to this day, they kind of preserve, despite that Estonia is now free, they preserve the tradition and kind of like remember their independence and what it took to kind of like acquire it again through these song festivals. And there's 30,000 singers on stage at once, so you can imagine what that sounds like. Um, it's pretty insane experience, but even the, a year and a half leading up to the festival, they commission composers to create new works, and then they send out choir directors to each different choir 
all over the world because you have to audition in order to make it into the, you have to be serious and show your dedication to learning the repertoire and whatever. So, and then they send out the dirigents or the directors to get everyone on the same page and then you all meet at the same time and there's this procession through the, the city and everyone's like crying and like everyone in the country comes to greet this, this choir. And then there's about 110,000 people on this song festival grounds and there's a torch and they take the torch up the tower and light the tower up like very Olympian kind of tradition. And then they sing these beautiful pieces together. When you had the Estonian choir singing these lines from a coding book that you discovered, did they look at you like, why are you having us sing this stuff? Like how collaborative was the process? It was very, it was quite collaborative. I mean, we talked about it throughout. And initially I was a little bit hesitant because, no, I wasn't hesitant. Like I knew that they asked me to do the work because they knew what, I, what I'm into. And so I had a certain element of confidence there, but sure, they had to kind of assure me a few times that it was fine that I just kind of go with my vision. Um, because, of course, when you're asked to do a project of that scale for um, an, an audience that's uh, nationwide rather than like, like a scene-wide, you know, it's a little bit different. So I felt like there were a lot of expectations or like I had to sort out what I wanted to say and I had to make sure that it was poignant for the time. So, but I think it, it turned out quite well. Although it was very modern, I will say. It was received in a very modern way. Like people were like, this is very interesting. <laughs> I think being an organ player or oftentimes being a piano player can be like a very solitary endeavor. And even being an electronic producer can often be a solitary endeavor. But you've also done a lot of collaboration in the past several years. Could you talk a bit about why you like to collaborate and what you get from the process? Collaboration's about um, rubbing up against others, I guess, fundamentally, um, and sharing. I mean, it's not really fun. Like, I mean, the point of music is to sound out and to listen to other sounds being sounded out. So unless you just want to be in the black box forever, and it's not very fun. <laughs> um, I, I, with collaboration, I tend to just kind of go with my gut and whatever is um, interesting for me or something, if it, just listening for sympathetic resonance. And then also sometimes not, like, um, some of the best collaborations have kind of been the most unexpected ones also. Um, or also ones that have been like a little, like very difficult at first. And then years later, you can look back at it like, ah. Uh. What was a difficult collaboration, if you don't mind spilling the beans? Well, they're all a little bit difficult, aren't they? I mean, in their special ways. I want to ask about one collaboration in particular. I mean, just to give people reference, 
you've worked with artists like How to Dress Well and Tim Hecker, but I actually want to ask about your work with LXV, and you guys did a collaborative album together, came out in 2015, it's called Sirens. You actually never met in person before you started making this record. Can you talk about how that came about? Yeah, I heard David's music, David Sutton is LXV, he's from Pennsylvania, and he, I heard his SoundCloud. This was kind of like in the earlier days of SoundCloud. I don't really cruise SoundCloud as much as I did back then. It was a great place then to hear new stuff. And the other day I was even talking about like blogs and how it was like the only way to hear new music and then SoundCloud kind of came out and it opened this dam of chaos. But yeah, this was a just post blog, I would say, but blogs were still relevant at the time as kind of like gatekeepers of sonic production in like the netherworlds of like experimentalism. And I was really into like hyper into digital um, modes of production and also just aesthetics generally and narratives. And uh, David was very hardcore um, at the time. And so we just ended up sharing a few messages and decided to make something. And we worked on that record for a year and a half, kind of just by proxy. And then we met in New York City. We had a gig at um, Transpecos. In the basement, James Place was running a series down there. Um, San Fuegos and a few others were playing that night. It was like a loud show. And yeah, it was a crazy gig because I mean, this person who like I made a whole record with, I was just meeting for the first time. We rehearsed like somewhere in Bushwick that day and it was a real chaotic. <laughs> um, it was a great, great day actually. And the set was really good, surprisingly. <laughs> Did you like each other? I mean, wasn't were you worried leading up to it that you're going to meet this guy and he's going to no. be a jerk or something? No, I knew he would be fine. Yeah. So there's, you're still friends? Yeah. Yeah, we're still friends. I feel like there's this sort of grandiosity to your music in a way of it just sounds like it's made for these large sort of regal spaces. And I wanted to ask, like, do you, I mean, you obviously come from this background of playing in churches and playing organ music. Some people call it sacred music. Do you think about place and ideas of space when you're composing and putting together your music? I think I think about the concert a lot and just what I would want to hear as someone who's going to listen to music rather than, rather than like be functional to music. <laughs> um, but I guess, yeah, I think about the architecture quite a bit. That kind of comes later though, when I'm deciding like what to share in terms of a program for whatever avenue I'm sharing in. But sometimes I guess if like, if I know ahead of time, if I'm writing something for a particular event and I know the space, then I might think about it. Yeah, and it's, it's something to consider for sure when you're coming from more controlled, like hyper-controlled 
production environments where, you know, the monitors are set exactly at an array of X, Y, and like, no, you gotta have that tweeter up a little higher because, you know, like people can get really crazy about hi-fi and like listening playbacks and like mixing stuff. But when you go to share it like in a live setting, like you kind of have to learn how to uh, deal with physics on a more immediate level. That makes me wonder with your live shows, how improvised is it? I figure when you're working with these sort of long form tones and changing reverbs depending on the space, there has to be some level of flexibility to it, or maybe there isn't, I and mean, you tell me. It really depends. I mean, liveness is, of course, a really age-old concept right by now for people who work in, who, for people who consider recorded media their primary media. I don't really concern myself with like what is liveness. Like it's, it's. Um, I mean, a lot of these works I cannot do them live. It's just, I mean, live in the sense that each single note is performed out in real time, like played by a finger or something. So I just consider like playback technology is kind of like extension of my brain at this point <laughs> and body. Yeah, it's something to keep flexible with, I think, and think of different ways of, I don't want to say remix because it doesn't feel right either, but um, rework the memory. I mean, clearly you're someone who thinks a lot about your music when you're making it, and it seems like there's a lot of ideas of theory and history and how humans relate to technology going in. And I'm just curious, how much of your music is sort of riffing on these ideas, these like sort of academic or theoretical constructs, and how much of it is coming from you and just playing, playing what you feel in the moment? Mm, I'm pretty addicted to learning, I think. And there's like, of course, it's endless in music, um, whether it's mathematical or theoretical or whether it's cultural or whether it's economical, like there's just, it's endless, <laughs> which is great. Um, but I think that I spend about like 50% of my time studying and then 50% of my time forgetting what I've studied and then just kind of like exhuming in a way, um, because I think if there's too much of a disconnect between, I mean, of course, like purely academic music is very valuable and that it's, it offers this really um, clear example-oriented, study-oriented um, sonic document of an idea or a technique. And almost A480 is kind of like that. I think it's like, it's pretty nerdy in that regard. Not nerdy, but just like void of like, um, I mean, people still trip to that music, I guess, but it's just, um, in the way I presented it, it was a little more study oriented. 
So it's interesting to think, you know, people think of synthesis and music technology as these inherently like modern pursuits, but I think it's sort of a recurring theme in your work that you're interested in like the history of music technology and mm -hmm. sort of demonstrating that this stuff goes back way longer than 20 years ago or even 50 years ago. It's like funny to think about something from the 15th century being designed to replace something that humans were doing. And like that story has continued with music technology. You think about the 808 and 909 were supposed to place drummer, replace drummers and then became this totally separate thing. Um, do you feel like the history of music technology is something that's important for understanding music in general? Oh, 100%. I think it's like extremely important. Um, it's written into music composition, like music playing, like everything since day one. You even look at like the invention of the pianoforte, for instance, and like what the dampener pedal did for music and how that like basically gave birth to impressionism and a lot of romantic musics and like the softening of the palette and what that did for like chordal abilities in the left hand, how it freed freed your hand from the keyboard, like just like the advent of a simple dampener pedal. Like I think it's very, it's like under, under studied, under considered. When people talk about your music, I feel like they use a lot of different words where it's, cause it's hard to describe. It's not like, oh, it's hip hop. Oh, it's techno. I mean, people say things like experimental or they say sacred music or they say choral music or stuff like that. Um, what I'm wondering is, or it's avant-garde, like how do you think of your music? Do you, do you even think about it in terms of categories and what's the appeal of making music in the form that you do where it's, you know, you'll make a piece that's 22 minutes long sometimes? I mean, I don't really think too much about format or, or reception. I'm not like, oh, I'm gonna make my trance record now or like my, you know, I'm not gonna, I mean, I respect if someone wants to do that, sure, but I, I just would rather kind of come across new combinations, I guess, um, in light of what I learned about what everyone else is doing. But I think I'm pretty omnivorous in that sense. Like, I listen to all music and I've, I think that there's no inherent value or like no primacy and value that are in one music over the other. I remember one time we spoke before and you said that when you first met Tim Hecker, one of the things that you guys bonded over is that you both loved Drake. Yeah, that's true. That was a Canadian, yeah, connection, I guess. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are some like noise people that would really hate to hear something like that, but for you, yeah. is, is it not a different category? I mean, I think that it's weird when people say they hate a music because then you're like saying you hate a whole group of people. And I just think that's really violent. I don't know. You're an artist, you know, you don't do traditional releases. You don't conform to traditional genre barriers, but you seem to be constantly touring and playing around the world at festivals. 
you have lots of commissioned pieces that you know different cultural institutions ask you to do um, sometimes when you put out a record you talk about it in the press sometimes you don't but you don't really seem that concerned with sort of the the usual cycle of the music industry but you're still finding a niche and is that something that you're you're constant you're consciously pursuing to try and stay out of that like secular album cycle rat race that a lot of artists seem to be stuck in? I just feel that it's really difficult to stick with something <laughs> um, in terms of like the press is so slow to kind of catch up with what I'm doing and then I feel like it's so much work to be updating that all the time and I would rather just be making music but it's something I think you kind of have to get a hold of and learn how to deal with the media also and you kind of have to get used to the, the multiple interpretations of your word and how common discourse can kind of inflect or paint over your own experience in ways. And I just feel like with f like a few years there, it was like a constant battle with the media and it was exhausting. So I just kind of was like, forget it kind of at a certain point. Uh, but um, that was a few years ago now. So I'm, I'm kind of ready, I think, to reapproach that. And what about with shows? Because it's not like the new Carolise Coverdale record comes out and then it's like, oh, it's time for my European tour and then that will be followed by my American tour and it's all very structured and there's like a social media campaign that ties into it. Like, yet at the same time, you're always traveling and I'll see like, oh, you have a residency at this place in Europe or this place in Canada or wherever. Like, how does it work with, with your live shows and planning that as a part of your career? Well, it's been really... Um, it's been a kind of a wild ride in the past while, I guess, like, uh, like you said, it's been a lot of different projects and, um, a lot of different ideas and a lot of different everything. Like for a while, my first huge tour, I was basically touring for like two years and then I would find myself, you know, doing like Elb Philharmonie one night in Hamburg, that beautiful new concert space. Um, and then I would be doing like Venster 99, like the next night, like Anarchist Pub in like Vienna. You know, it was really weird, like up and down. But I think that's just kind of, it's not an uncommon experience, I think, with musicians, but maybe it was a little more extreme in my case because I also don't, I've been very resistant to having a manager or anything like that and I like to like do my own thing and make my own decisions. And so if something interests me, I like, I just do it. Whether or not that's a bad business decision, I don't know. It definitely made me very exhausted. So now we'll, we'll see um, for the next few years how it goes. When you are composing, like, 
it sounds I mean, there's a lot of different sounds on there. We've heard a lot of different music. Sometimes there's vocal bits, sometimes there's piano, sometimes there's organ, sometimes there's something that's entirely electronic. Where do you begin? Like what is sort of like your home sound or instrument? Is it on the computer? Is it on a piano? Is it on an organ? Is it something else entirely? Yeah, either percussion or wind, for sure. Um, never really strings. Usually percussion or wind, yeah. It's interesting you say percussion just because there's not a lot of like drums. Well, piano is a percussion instrument. Well, now you're you know, out, <laughs> out nerding me on music. Um, fair enough. All right, well, uh, let's uh, have a hand for Carolise Coverdale. Thanks. Hey, this is Jordan Rothline again. Thanks for listening to Couch Wisdom. Before you go, I just wanted to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the Red Bull Music Academy. The whole thing is a world-traveling series of music workshops and events. If you want to find out more, check us out at redbullmusicacademy.com. Also, if you liked what you heard on this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please go for it and consider rating us while you're at it. It really helps other people discover the podcast. Finally, there's a whole world of other great music programming like this to check out at redbullradio.com. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.